Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. We're opening today's show with a rendition of of a famous American song inspired by Ken Russell's The Devils. <laughs> yes, do you have a moment to talk about our Lord and Savior, Father Urban Grandier? <laughs> oh my god, or, or oh the the chattest motherfucker to live in 1600s France, Father Urban Chattier. Yeah. <laughs> uh we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot oh, of fun oh, with this. Oh my god. With this uh, week's Oliver, Oliver Reed. Uh, we uh, are we are oh i don't even i don't even have words for the fun we're gonna have here uh oliver reed you may not you may not like it but oliver reed in the devils is what peak male performance looks like <laughs> um yeah, hello everybody hello and welcome to the show it's a it is uh it's it's a birthday episode um as as you'll know if, you, if you've listened to the show for a while uh, every time every time one of us has a birthday we get to choose the film that we talk about um, and I think I would struggle to pick a film which is more my brand than this one. Um, we are talking about, uh, honestly, just an just an amazing, an amazing bit of cinema. We are talking about Ken Russell's The Devils. Um, I'm joined as always by Ash. How are you doing? I I am I am refreshed. I'm invigorated. Uh, the walls of the town were just torn down by the decadent king. So you know, doing doing okay, all things considered. How are you? Uh, I'm 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 good. I'm good. I um I'm about to be burnt at the stake for getting uh the person who was sent to me for Latin lessons pregnant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who's to blame you though? What else are you gonna do? It's the 1600s in France. There's like three things you can do, right? And I hope I know I know we said no birthday gifts this year, but I really hope you enjoy the tickets I got you to the gigantic nunnery orgy. Uh, I mean, I I didn't think I would enjoy it, uh, <laughs> but honestly, what, when I'd been carried in on my sedan chair with um, wearing my mask um, and presenting the priest in charge with a, a gold embossed box that was said to contain a vial of the blood of Christ, but contained nothing at all. Um, it was a great evening, so I really appreciate that. <laughs> it, it cost a pretty penny, but it was worth it, I think. Uh, worth worth every penny. In all seriousness for a second, The Devils is a film that is kind of much talked about. And, and I think if you are listening to this, you probably have a kind of an idea of what the film was like. But as always, it's going to be up to, to Ash to explain what the film is about and to kind of, you know, dispel some of the myths and 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 heresies that have circulated about this occult piece of cinema. So, my 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 dear friend, would you mind would you mind explaining Ken Russell's The Devils? What's it about? All right, one second I just had to close my window. I realized that was open. Don't want to let the demons in while we're recording. No, of course not, obviously. That's for later. <laughs> How can we ever be anything but alone? Ken Russell's The Devils is a vision of many nightmares, but it is also a confrontation with our inherent status as subjects, alone. The unbridgeable chasm between the self and other is only ever bridged by the engineering of social technologies, and, as of this writing, 
the majority of those serve alienation and isolation. Even when the kings, priests, and military rulers and the devils drink deep from the cup of depravity, they do so together. Secret Republican orgies and redacted Tory dinner parties flaunt Mask of the Red Death energy, but they are acts done together. We, the working peoples of this world, are defined by our status as beings alone. All of our struggles are efforts to overcome this alienation, to join together again. And if in those moments when we really do have nothing else, we hold our loneliness together. We've come to see this alienation as true freedom. This isolation is liberty. This disconnection as a tie that binds. If we have nothing together, we at least have our agony. The scent of each other burning in our nostrils. The echoes of our cries. If we truly have nothing else, we have the crack that runs through all of our eyes. Hear not the voices of priests. Read not the dictates of kings. Feel only the burning touch of those who cannot reach you as we discuss Ken Russell's The Devils. Ooh, yes. Yes. Where would you where would you like to begin? Honestly, honestly, with this one, I okay. So we're we're entering into our formalist exorcism. You know, we're 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 tying everyone down to the beds and we're reciting the the holy verses of formalist film criticism. And I'm going to begin by by talking about framing because. So I think so. I, I know that you had seen the devils prior to this. This was my first viewing, and all I had known about the devils prior to watching this was that this is supposedly one of the most infamous films. It's one of the most perverse acts of cinema. It, it is decadent. It is reviled. People talk about Ken Russell's The Devils in the same breath as Pasolini's Solo. You know, like like this is this is discussed as as the, one of those pinnacles of sadism on screen, and it really isn't. It's really none of those things. And in some in some respects, yes, but this is just an incredibly well-made movie and so much of that comes down to brilliant formal execution on the part of Ken Russell and the other, you know, artists on the team. I I really do think that like people have probably heard, heard about this film. There'll be more people who've heard about this film than people who've actually seen this film or watched. And, and, Mm -hmm. and I really hope we can kind of redress the balance because um, that framing, I think does this film a massive disservice. And I think, it speaks to a lot of the neuroses and anxieties that are addressed directly within the film itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, this is a film, you know, we were kind of joking around before we started recording, but you pointed out, this is a, this is a film, which is essentially about the three things that you're never supposed to talk about, <laughs> which is religion, politics, and sex. Um, and it sees those things as kind of deeply interconnected in, in really important and very significant, very serious ways. Um, and I think the the kind of like revulsion and neuroticism and the scathing critical reception this got when it came out is a continuation of the same problems that the film itself seeks to address, right? It seeks to address a kind of like a puritanism, a regulation of desire, a kind of um, a, a dishonesty, a refusal to admit who you are and what you really want. Um, and yeah, it, it's... There are, there are obviously even today there are bits in the devils which are like which are extremely shocking um, and really hard to watch. Like there are there are scenes which and we'll we'll get onto some of them in more detail later. But there are scenes which are really hard to watch and are genuinely horrifying. But it's it's an incredible it's an incredible film. 
it's it's uh it's very politically serious occasionally it's very funny um like it's it's got like interesting things to say that it's it's trying to get across um so i think it's a kind of shame that it's got a reputation that it just doesn't deserve oh oh i i agree like you know like like this movie has it's just too good for its own good i think you know i i think that one of the things that separates this from Pasolini's Sallow is that Sallow knows what it is. Sallow goes all in on revulsion and defilement and perversion. You know, it doesn't it doesn't even think about flinching. It's already diving into the abyss before we have time to know what's going on. The Devils is just a great movie. Yeah. It's just <laughs> yeah. Br- brilliant, like full force acting talent, flawless cinematography, even in all of the like chopped up, redacted, half stitched together versions of this that we have access to, the pacing is still nearly flawless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's just real damn good. Um, and I think that opens the door for this kind of like, because like when you call Solo an act of cinematic perversion, anybody who's seen the movie is going to go like, yeah, duh. <laughs> okay, next. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But when you, but when you when you say the same thing about the devils, like you have to fight a little bit harder in that space because this movie really isn't that. You're you're absolutely right that there's things in here that are shocking and difficult to watch and unsettling. Nothing on a magnitude that earns the reputation that this film has. Yeah, I think I think like pretty much everyone hated this when it was first released. Uh, Pauline Kael famously gave it a horrible review. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it a, a kind of scathing review. And I think I, I genuinely do think that that kind of like puritanism, that that refusal to take it seriously, that refusal to try and engage with uh, what the film is trying to talk about, is directly indicted in the text of the film itself. Right, you're continuing mm-hmm. the same problem, um, and and we like we don't spend a lot of time. We don't usually like we've done this a few times, but I think we sh- should just kind of talk about. This, this film's amazing. Like, uh, uh, Oliver Reed just just dominates this film. <laughs> like, and, and this is kind of like, as someone who's never seen this movie, like, when you tell me I'm about to watch one of the most perverted and decadent and sickening films in human creation, I'm not expecting Oliver Reed as your leading man. No. Like, like the, the, this movie was just like, it is nothing like, in the best way imaginable, this movie is nothing like how people talk about this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has uh, Vanessa Redgrave in it uh, as Sister mm-hmm. Jean of the Angels, who is, like, the two of them are just, like, intensely kind of charismatic. Um, almost, like, to the point where you can't watch anything else when they're on screen. Uh he yep. uh, Ken Russell had done a really successful adaptation of D.H. Lawrence's Women in Love in 1969, his uh, film project before this one, and so this was he was he was kind of tapped as like a kind of quite serious culture filmmaker, someone who who had a kind of distinctive way of doing things, and they uh, United Artists asked Russell to adapt The Devils of Loudon. Um, and then mm-hmm. hated, and then hated what he was given. Um, another thing I really love about this film is uh, its design, 
What did you What do you think of the setting and the, the 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 environment that you're in in this film? So so I I love it, right? Because there there are moments where these set pieces are clearly not of the 1600s, in their architecture, in their design, and their style, right? It, it, the the movie isn't trying to like present us with what I think would be an easily codified depiction of the 1600s, which would be like. So, so a lot of this movie, while I was watching this, I thought a lot about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, uh, b- because like it's it's drawing from those same visual tropes, right? We've got the plague, bring out your dead guys, um, bring out your dead lo- Union Local 666 uh, uh, reporting in. <laughs> but like, so we got to bring out your dead guys and I w- I'm expecting the rest of like that package, right? I, I was at some point expecting like goofy inquisitors to show up and like, the, the the kind of you know it's 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 the 1600s so everyone just like rolls around in dirt all day long because there's nothing else to do but this movie is incredibly level with its setting and its scenery right it, it it makes a world that feels distant enough in the past to make the setting believable but also feels lived in and cared for in, in a way that makes me immediately grab on to our characters' needs when it comes to their town, right? They're in the town of Ludon, which was walled at the time. And the king has ordered the walls to be torn down. And, you know, instead of that being this kind of like depressing, you know, quote unquote, medieval background, it's you 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 can see the struggle. You can see the love that these people have for their community. Yeah, the, the sets are designed by uh, Derek Jarman, mm-hmm. who is... Uh, a kind of a, a a kind of legendary figure uh, of both kind of like avant-garde British cinema and theater. He was an artist. He was um, gay rights activist, and this was kind of one of his very first big jobs. Uh, he spent three months designing and building uh, sets and um, modeled them on quite a lot of the stuff in Fritz Lang's Metropolis. You can feel it, yeah. Peter Maxwell is the composer. The score for this is incredible. Again, it was one of his um, first really big jobs, and it's it's like it pulls together all of the all of this sort of like incredible talent, and everybody just technically it's just so accomplished. Oh, I, I completely. And we also, have to, I mean, like Michael Gothard is in this as Father Barr, mm-hmm. and that that means that I think my new favorite double billing. If I, you know, like if I ever got to do a double billing at a theater, I, I would do the uh, hidden Texas Chainsaw Ma- Massacre prequel, which is Ken Russell's The Devils, <laughs> and The Devils and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think is like a perfect two movie combo. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> yeah, what, what a great we combination. To, we have to cover. We have to cover Life Force at some point. Now we've opened the door. Oh, I think so. I think so. <laughs> But yeah, like I, I, I couldn't agree more. Like the, the setting is just so, and the setting feeds into the framing too. Like how these shots are framed are like so clever and innovative and interesting. And like, it's not just trading on the alleged excess, right? It would have been easy to make the human centipede version of this movie, which is not very creative or thoughtful. It's just kind of trading on like, bro, this movie's so sick. There's like 600 nuns and they're in an orgy and this dude gets burnt alive. Like it would yeah. have been so easy to trade on that. Yeah, yeah. But this, but this movie doesn't. It, it, it takes the hard way out. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's dealing with something really interesting as well. It's dealing with, like um, Russell always said that he thought this was one of his most political films. And I think we can get into the politics in a little bit, but 
uh, it's based on it's based on a real historical event, which which brings up so many interesting things about kind of politics, about religion, about the role of the church and the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are so many different versions of this as well. So there, um, very technically, this is an adaptation of uh, a '50s book by Aldous Huxley, which was a sort of as he called it a documentary novel on the Devils of Lidon and. Uh, Russell always said that if people found the film offensive, they should go and read the book because the book shows that the real life thing was like much worse and weirder and kind of much more intense. Uh, there was also a play that uh, that was done a little bit earlier, and like the the Ludon possessions have been like the subject of opera. Um, so there's the, all of these kind of previous versions f- building into this kind of like work of. I suppose you'd call it like a work of popular modernism, but uh, one that is has been censored to hell and back. Yeah, and I think that this this leads us into like the last part of our kind of like formalist exorcism of this film. And one of the interesting things, and that's like, how do you even watch Ken Russell's The Devils? You know, like like all movies have cut content, right? All, all movies are redacted by other creators, the editors, right? It's censored by studios. Every movie kind of has to struggle with that space a little bit, but it gets a lot more complicated when you've got a movie that like has legitimately never actually been released in its full form. Yeah. And it's been so like aggressively curtailed. So what are your thoughts on kind of like the quote unquote real of this reel of cinema? Wink. Well, it's almost at this point, it's almost impossible to kind of um, identify, right? Because there were there's there are so many different versions there were different cuts that had to be made to get the film released in the states uh, and in the UK um Russell even said at one point like the US cut which um comes in at about 108 minutes is basically unwatchable because it takes out the kind of the intensity of two of the big scenes where which is the big orgy at the nunnery which obviously Censors had huge amounts of problems with, and there, there's there, there are kind of whispers of, like there are even longer cuts that exist. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until the early two thousands actually that the the cut that kind of generally gets released now, which is a, just under two hours, um, was put together because a just a box of film was found in the archives of a movie studio, uh, because the movie critic Mark Commode had been kind of raising hell about this film for so long uh, and was desperate to see if it could be restored. And that is, you know, I think it went from something like 80 minutes to they added in a whole nother reel of film, Mm -hmm. uh, which restored so much of the stuff, which previously would mean it could never be seen. And it just underscores the way in which, um, you know, film we think of film as kind of ubiquitous, but it's such a fragile medium, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We I, I think we tend to have this false conception that film is film is like the walls of the city of Ludon. You know, if you you pass by it every day and it seems impervious and indestructible and and strong and erect and powerful, you know, in in the words of Father Chad. <laughs> but it, the reality is is that strength is a piece of social relationship. Right, it's not inherent to the thing in and of itself. The walls of a city can be ripped down if ruling parties wish it, and cinema can be forgotten for the same reasons. Right, mm-hmm. like, 
if, if, one thing I always consider is that like, what are the main ways to access cinema these days? Paramount Plus, Disney Plus, Netflix, Shutter, Amazon Prime, all of these like you know Apple TV, these streaming services, right? You're not free to select from from a rich archive of, of human cinema. You've got what they upload, you know, which means that there's like nobody's watching anything from the 70s and down because that's not getting uploaded. You know, I love reading about like television fads mm. from like the 60s, 70s and 80s because it's like like these are these are things that are just like getting wholly forgotten, you know, because they have no way of being preserved anymore. And I think the the devils is such a good vehicle for this discussion because we have we have something of like it, it's less of a film and and more of a mythology with a film attached to it. Yes. Yeah. And it, it shows the ways in which uh, this kind of art is so often curtailed by things which are completely out of the hands of audiences. Uh, I mean, Russell, Russell, when he made it, was uh, says that he was, you know, he, he was Catholic. He was very secure in his Catholicism, did not think of himself as making a film that was pornographic in any way. Um, but it was it was. It was given given an X rating in the UK, which basically meant it was classified as pornography. Um, he even met; he had meetings with the head of the British Board of Film Classification, um, and it's like, what what does it even mean for a film to be banned? Because you can you can restrict its access, but it still kind of has some distribution networks. You can cut things out, but it still exists in some form. And it's like once once the image on film is is inscribed it's even if it's even if it's very fragile it's kind of difficult to eradicate it altogether right oh yeah 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 you can't you you can't suppress ken russell's the devils entirely you know like like it becomes difficult to even even from like 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 a studio standpoint right like there there are so many movies where like you're going to lose money no matter what, but you'll lose less money if you release a weird film that's difficult to handle, you know? And I think, I think the devils falls into that where it's like, okay, like you, from the studio's perspective, you can only redact so much of this because you'll lose less money if you release it than if you just burn the whole thing down. Well, I think that's a, that's a pretty good place to kind of wrap up our formalism zone. Um, and, um, now we can invite you all to the Discourse Orgy, uh, a.k.a. the Discorgy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, everybody grab your nun robes by the door. <laughs> speaking, uh, speaking of an orgy of discourse, if you would like to hear more uh, bonus horror Vanguard episodes, get early access, uh, early access to merch, other fun things, you can head over to patreon.com slash horror vanguard and support the show for less than the cost of tearing down the city of Ludon's walls. Hey. <laughs> boop, 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 boop. But um, yeah, so, okay, here, here's one of the more like uh, odd things that occurred to me in the course of watching this movie. But in so many ways, the devils walked so Footloose could run. And I think that this is this is something that's like it's like a weird thing that it occurred to me, right? But like you have so many cinematic similarities. Maybe Footloose is the third in my triptych of like the Devil's Texas Chainsaw Massacre Footloose. 
because you you have a lot of the same things being played with here, right? You have the decadent perversions of this outsider class being a, played against kind of the true religious perversions of a ruling class. You know, you you have you have these perceptions and these attempts to locate perversity in a society without really like or like Wall still trying to navigate that against like capital P power. You know, like like what are these things socially? What are they in larger contexts? They're never just the acts themselves, right? Dancing isn't dancing in Footloose. Dancing is synecdoche for so much more. You know, the sexual perversion in the devils isn't just some kind of sexual perversion. It's synecdoche for much larger social machinations. Oh, completely. Um, and of course, we should point out that uh, thanks to the, uh, uh, the the kind of abomination that was the uh, the, the the Space Jam sequel, um, very technically, this is in the Space Jam cinematic universe. Oh, that is one hundred percent true. There, there are the Devil's Nuns in Space Jam. In in Space Jam, a new legacy uh, makes reference to Ken Russell's The Devils. Uh, so if you're trying to connect Oliver Reed with LeBron James, you can do that in one now. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's a Warner. Oh, oh, the 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 Warner server verse. <laughs> See that that is the true perversion. It's it's not it's not the decadence on screen and the devils. It's the existence of the Warner server verse. I I I couldn't agree more. Um. So how do we how do we. So if we're trying to kind of like read this film, if we're trying to if we're trying to engage with this film beyond its reputation, which it doesn't really deserve, beyond the kind of uh, hysteria about it, you know, the, its mythos. Uh, how how do you think we can kind of read this film now? Because in a way, this doesn't feel like. In some ways, it does feel very much a product of the seventies. But in in many ways, particularly thematically, this feels kind of shockingly timely, right? So so yeah, how do we yeah. how do we how do we read this? So so one of the things I was kind of struck by is the appearance of crowds in the devils. You know, you you've, you've always got these masses kind of congregated in positions of spectatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first one is when, you know, um, Urbain Grandier is giving the speech to the town of Loudon and you've got the whole crowd out there cheering. You've got um, when um, King Louis Thirteenth sends his troops to go tear down the walls of the city. You've got more spectators out there watching that. More spectators when that escalates into like a soft coup, <laughs> you know, a military resistance between the city and the monarchy. Um, you've got spectators during the exorcism se- sequence. You've got the nuns as kind of these meta spectators in their own possession, possessions and orgies, right? As an actor that's also a spectator, this kind of performance theater of the exorcism. Um, and then all the way to the end when you've got, you know, Urbain Grandier is being executed, burned alive at the stake. And he's doing, he, you know, he's he's got his audience. He's giving speeches like... And it got me thinking about how we as spectators have the same kind of mediated relationships of events through their media depictions, right? Like I was thinking about like, you know, like the herd depth trial that's going on, how school shootings in America are presented on TV, how things that are kind of like excessive and emotional and, and, and really difficult to look at 
are portrayed and are reintegrated back into some kind of like acceptable framework, acceptable terms and conditions that kind of strip the gravity of what's going on. Because you get that final execution with Urbain Grandier, right? And he's being burnt alive at the stake for pissing off the wrong people is mm-hmm. what ultimately he is being killed for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he, he, he gets he gets a little too in charge and then he's executed. But you've got in the background, people are like, you know, like a troop of dancers is reenacting the the orgy at the convent. You know, they're, they're reenacting the exorcism and the events preceding the trial. You know, you've got tons of people in the streets just kind of cheering and chanting and like they're, they're, they're spectating and they're kind of like digesting these pre-digested understandings of these events, right? The the actuality, the what's going on here, a kind of materialist look at Urbain Grandier's execution is being stripped from them in favor of the spectacle. Yeah, uh, this is this is a film that's kind of deeply, I think, it, profoundly concerned with the um, with the masses, right? With with a kind of like mass psychology, um, and I think that's what that is part of what gives it a kind of timeless quality the reason it resonates so much now is because we do live in an age of spectacle and in a sort of um you know it this isn't just a kind of rehash of you know society of the spectacle but it is the way in which um media spectacle has become the determining influence on every kind of institution so it's like uh, you know, uh, school, school school shootings become a kind of media spectacle when they are instead like uh, incidences of violence which reflect systemic institutional failure, yes. right? But mm-hmm. they become this kind of ephemeral product that is designed to become, you know, massively influential, but at the same time doesn't kind of change anything. I found it so so sort of like depressingly familiar that. Um, in the aftermath of the latest uh, school shooting in Texas, what what trended on Twitter was just uh, do something in capitals. And I was like, well, the trend is part of what people think doing something looks like, right? Yeah. And, and you see how, how, how the these kind of like regurgitated media depictions of events cause us to lose sight of kind of their systemic and material groundings. Yeah, exactly. When I, say, when I say material groundings here, I also include like just the gross emotional reality of what's going on. But like, you know, we, we have like, you know, re- Republicans are saying like, oh, school should be hard point access only one door in one door out. And now we're kind of like we're arguing that. Right. Like, you know, like, like there's people all over the media, all over the Twitter, the Twitter. Wow. (laughs) All over the socials. Yeah. Arguing about like, oh, why, why would it be a bad thing if schools only had one egress, you know, have triangle shirtwaist fire anyone. But like, we're arguing that instead of returning to kind of like the material realities that bring about these nightmares to begin with, we're already getting sucked into the spectacle, sucked into the news cycles. Yeah, and 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 Grandier kind of sees it coming in the context of this film, right? Um, mm-hmm. And decides not to, like, in in a way, I think he's he's an extremely self destructive character, which is kind of what makes him interesting. Uh, but is also aware of the sort of fickleness. You know, he gives that great speech to the guy who's come to start tearing down the walls, and the entire t- town cheers for him, and at the same time. You know, they all cheer as he's burned alive at the end mm-hmm. of the film. 
uh, yeah. and he and he warns them uh right you've lost you've you've lost you've lost you mm-hmm. you you you've lost your freedom you've lost your autonomy you're going to become a kind of slave and it, and in, in a sense you know the spectacle is designed to turn you from an agent into literally a spectator yeah all of this stuff is kind of staged publicly right it, to me it reminded me of the opening of um Foucault's Discipline and Punish, where they talk about <laughs> they talk about the death of Damien's the regicide, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where it is this, the whole point is you reduce agential capacity in the future by turning the the mass into spectators in the present, right? You can't you can't be revolutionary if all you're doing is watching constantly. And it's it's just like the the execution is call and response. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you know. So, so one of the executioners will say something. Uh, Grandier will say something, and and people will just start chanting it, right? You, you know, like like the the terms and conditions of events are wholly in the control of the monarchy, mm-hmm. right? Like like Grandier's death is not only because he he started to piss off too many people in power, and then by and by that gets you burnt alive as a witch, but it's also because like. I, if he if he would have been a okay with the tearing down of those walls and in full support of those activities, he probably could have gone away with everything else he wanted to do. Oh yeah, you know it, it wouldn't yeah, have yeah. been localized on him. He wouldn't have borne the weight of these events, right? And so we we, we see that drift that we're talking about, where, where the people in the city who have a stake in the city retaining its walls, right? Like like like, like at this time in France, there's a lot of conflict between Catholics and Protestants. Ludon is a is a heavily Protestant city, but it's Protestants who sided with with the monarchy, so they're on like really shaky ground. And losing the walls means losing any sense of security they could have had. Yes, absolutely. Um, it is. I think I think it's worth kind of then sort of like digging into this idea of like the mob and and what we might mean by kind of like mass politics. Mm-hmm. Um. And the kind of the two the two questions here that I I think about like is the kind of central driving concern of uh, Grandier's character is uh, freedom. That there's this idea of like what what he wants is is a sense of freedom and the whole value of Ludon, as he puts it in that speech to the town, is its self government, self determination. Um. And it's very kind of notable that one of the first major conversations between Richelieu and the king is Richelieu explicitly says that in the future there should be no difference. There should be no there should be no distinction between the church in France and the state itself. Mm-hmm. Which is about the kind of collapse of freedom, right? It's about bringing everything into this... Uh, there's that great scene where... Uh, Richelieu is sort of being wheeled through a great kind yes, of archive. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, well, that's the future. That's what that's Richelieu's vision of the future. Uh, what do you think? What do you think about how this 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 film deals with questions of like justice and freedom? For me, the, the scene that I think about all the time with this is Richelieu is attempting to convince King King Louis XIII that something needs to be done about Loudon. The walls need to come down. They need to go after Grandier. They need to break the city. Mm-hmm. And like for, for the whole conversation, we just see like King Louis Thirteenth is like laughing and unconcerned and he's shooting his pistol off into the distance. 
you know, and like, you know, he'll take a shot, he'll hand it, he'll hand it off to his servant and they'll bring him a new freshly loaded pistol to shoot. And, and we, we don't really have context for what he's doing. You know, we can hear some other, you know, noble, noblemen chanting and shouting in the background and laughing. And so this is some target shooting event, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and the whole while Richelieu is attempting to argue for like these these supposedly higher in quotes here higher causes right like you know like the power of the state and like whatever and, and then we kind of pan out and king king louis is murdering dudes dressed as crows uh yeah he's he's um he's shooting protestants uh dressed yeah. as as, uh, as blackbirds mm-hmm. <laughs> like and i i think i think like that, that that for me is one of the most perverted and jarring scenes in the entire film yeah, and I think that's because it kind of lays a lot of these mechanics bare. It lays a lot of we're talking about bare because these people try to talk about these higher values, you know, the unity between the church and the state and the history of our nation, and, and there should be no walled cities. And and in reality, they're just kind of like shooting shooting people in the back for sport because they don't see them as human anymore. Yeah, they're so much more base and perverted and degenerated than their kind of argumentation would have them would have us believe that they are. Yeah, absolutely. And when you see the things that uh, our, our witch hunter Father Pierre Barre uh, does, um, it's infinite. It's it's infinitely worse than anything Grandier does, um, and infinitely more kind of dangerous and dehumanizing. Yes. Absolutely. Right. And like another one of the scenes that I think is really telling for kind of what we're talking about right now in terms of like power and its relationship to the masses. It's that scene we talked about earlier, right? Where like, you know, King Louis the 13th literally rolls up to the orgy in the convent and like Father Barr is somewhat participating in this orgy, struggling to exercise people. There's there's all kinds of debauchery happening in the background and and like King Louis shows up to pull a practical joke on his head execute or his head uh not executioner. Exorcist. Oh exorcist. Yeah. Father Barr is like the head exorcist, right? And and he shows up to just pull a practical joke on him and, and then like goes away. He's like fundamentally unconcerned with what he's seeing and what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like for, for him it's a joke because like that that orgy is not an implicit threat to his power. No. No. And you can you can you can victimize these people. You can you can you can keep them you can keep them locked up. You can you can take away any any sense of liberty that they might have. Um. Uh, but it's it's this this notion of individuality that the film kind of talks about a lot as well. Um, because this is the whole point, right? Uh, Grandier is this incredibly charismatic kind of public figure. Uh, but is uh, Ken Russell put it like he embodies the the paradox of the Catholic Church, which is that he is he is a priest, but he's also a man, and that puts him into some very stupid and absurd situations. <laughs> yeah, which is like where the woman that he's gotten pregnant comes to him for confession about getting pregnant, and he, in the middle of church, basically tells her like, "Yeah, sorry, I don't know you. Can you leave now?" <laughs> <laughs> But it's like the the problem is like there is no mass organization that Grandier leads, right? The, there is a kind of spontaneous nature to the mob, right? Which means um, the spectacle is very powerful, but it's also kind of ephemeral. Um, yeah. And like you see, you see it in 
uh, when uh, Father Bai uh, arrives and is essentially torturing confessions out of people, mm. there, are, there are a lot of people who are watching and going, oh, this is amazing. This is great sport. And then there are a couple of people who go, what are you doing? You, you're monsters. You've, you've desecrated the house of God. You know, you're torturing these women. Um, and, the you know, the mob is incredibly relying just on kind of spontaneous public uh, kind of images means that if you are interested in any kind of like uh, change, you're incredibly vulnerable to that being taken away, which is kind of the problem that Grande runs into. Yeah, and I think that the, the, the crowd watching The Exorcist here, I think is incredibly interesting, right? Because we have, the, there are those two groups that you were talking about. There were people who were like really stoked to watch a sick exorcism, bro. And then there were some people who were like, okay, this is really fucked up. What are we doing here? But there's also a whole block of those people that get bored and leave. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's a, it's a, it's a C-minus exorcism. They're not here for it. You know, their, their entertainment dollar can be better spent elsewhere. And like that, I think adds a lot of like that. Is, that is literally the spectacle. <laughs> that is that is the, these these women being brutally tortured for a confession that's just going to facilitate a political power play. You know, like like being converted into something akin to like something lower than like any kind of like actual form of entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. So what what do you want? What do you think about? religious experiences let's let's sanctify the podcast yeah this is this is super interesting because like the big thing of this film is the relationship between power and desire and politics and religion are both uh like without without being too dollars or guitarian about it uh politics and religion are both like deeply uh concerned with the questions of how does one regulate and distribute desire Mm-hmm. Right, and the whole point, in many senses, of of anti Oedipus is like there isn't there there's there's one economy, right? There is there's one there's one network which is these like infinite like infinite flows of desire, and what we have are various ways of channeling and uh, funneling desire into uh, different directions. You know, it can it it is sublimated into the political, but it's also deeply sublimated into religion. Um, and you know, the, the, like the famous, uh, vision she has of Grandier walking on the water or mm-hmm. the, the later visions of like, uh, Grandier as, as Christ crucified, uh, where she kind of kisses his wounds. There's like, it's not just, it's not just body horror, right? It's about the exploration of when does religious experience that kind of desire for transcendence have a kind of like physical eroticism to it. And there's like there's a huge tradition of this, right? Mm-hmm. You you only need to look at art like of like um, Gian Lorenzo Benini's The Ecstasy of Saint Teresa, um, which is like very obviously about what you think it's about, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's religious art, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's uh, an ecstatic experience uh, recorded by Saint Teresa of Avila. Uh, which is an encounter with an angel, an angel with a uh, a long spear of gold that entered the body, uh, causing a uh, what is it? A sweetness of excessive pain, according to her own autobiography. Hmm. And you go, hmm, yeah, it's it's very obviously about what it, what you think it's about. <laughs> 
But it's like, this entire film is about this problem, right? What do you do with desire? How do you respond to it? How do you respond to this kind of like seemingly limitless potential within humans? And what are the institutional, political, religious, state forces that seek to control it? Uh, What do you think? Um, I think this is really interesting, right? Because that scene where Sister um, Jean gets very sensual with the tormented body of Grandier as Christ. Because, the, you know, like the, the wound in Christ's side, right, from the spear, it's depicted in a lot of art as being very vaginal. It's a very vaginal wound, right? In terms of its, its depiction and how it's been drawn, right? So that adds another layer of kind of eroticism and complexity to that sequence, right? Like, the, you know, her, her fascination with the holes in the body of Christ takes on a whole new meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that stresses another kind of complexity here right because everything is always embodied you know like believe believe in kind of metaphysical powers and things outside of the body if you will but it all kind of comes back to to the address of the self you know we kind of live in this thing and like certain bodily experiences are always renovated (laughs) renovated is the wrong word um certain bodily experiences are always revered you know, uh, the, the the suffering one goes through when fasting. That's mm-hmm. a bodily experience, right? That is in some ways pleasurable. It's not just pain. And this blurs the line between what pain and pleasure even are. If you're enjoying your suffering, is it even pain anymore? Yeah. Like, and I think that this movie really complicates those spaces because we tend to think of sex as an act that isn't sacred. It's a defilement of the sacred. It's a breaking of of these holy things outside of in these incredibly narrow and incredibly specific ways that you're allowed to have sex. And even that is like a thing you you can you, you can you can do it, but you shouldn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is this is kind of complicating this puzzle here, right? Because like that entire crowd is in an orgy of of pleasure and excess at the end of the movie when they're watching a man be burnt alive. And that is completely mm. sanctioned by the state. That is 100% A-OK. To give this a kind of like another layer, there's, um, there is, there is, there is something else going on that I think we can kind of like deepen things, which is like, there's a famous Latin phrase that's used a lot in a lot of like religious arts. It's a, um, uh, it's a Latin, uh, translation of a verse in the Bible, uh, noli me tangere. Um, which is the first words Christ speaks to Mary post-resurrection. And uh, Noli Mi Tangier translates as um, touch me not. And so there's this idea of like religion being a kind of non-physical thing, right? You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to want to kind of touch the body of Christ because the body of Christ is divine. It's something that's gone beyond the material. But the whole in a, in a way, I think if you want to read uh, the devils kind of religiously, you can see it as a kind of refutation of this, right? What happens to the body? What happens to the body that is uh, told it cannot touch or be touched is that you end up with, um, it, it, you know, it's it's not simply a, a, a fact of like, oh, well, re- sexual repression is, is kind of dangerous. That's not, that's not just what's going on. It's that 
the control and regulation of desire necessarily involves a kind of punishing and disciplining of the body, right? Which, as you pointed out, easily lapses over into kind of like a sadomasochism, right? Like she self-flagellates while she's thinking of the the, the hot man that she really wants. Um, and it literally involves using the body right at the end with the famous, the famous moment with the charred femur of Urban Grandier. Um, like, so it's, it's, it's not simply a kind of like, it's not simply this thing of like sexual repression equals bad. You go, yeah, it's obviously about that, but it's also about the fact that like desire is not abstract, but is it always embodied? And so what regulative power seeks to do to the body is not just of political or kind of social importance, but is eminently tied up in, in um, this kind of slightly nebulous idea of desire, right? Right at the end where Barre is kind of screaming at Grandier to confess is no different than uh, Mignon watching the nun orgy while masturbating, right? Like it's, it's all there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like these, these impulses are distinct only in how they're mediated through power. Mm-hmm. It is, it is still a very fleshly craving for embodied pleasure that these people are seeking. It is just in terms of does, does power accept how they're currently seeking to, to relieve themselves? You know, and, and again, like I'm struck by the beginning sequence of this movie is Louis Thirteenth wearing, wearing a bikini, doing, yep. doing a play in, in which he kisses a man and like everyone cheers and applauds and even Richelieu is there saying, Oh, how well done. And it's like, no, they have, they have to like it when he does it because he's the King. It is purely mediated by power. If a bunch of peasants did that, they'd be burnt alive as witches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As, as, as deviants or as, you know, so we're approaching the one hour mark. Do you, do you have any other devilish insight for us? Well, I think there are, we should talk about uh, this. You know, we've talked a little bit. We've talked a little bit about religion. We've talked a little bit about uh, uh, politics. We should also probably finish by talking about how this film deals with sex. Uh, it's a it's a horny movie. It's got a very horny yes. main main character. Um, Urban Grandier uh, loves to bang. Like the man, the man is a danger to himself. Uh, this is what gets him into trouble, right? Is getting somebody pregnant who he shouldn't, but also um, getting married when he shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he breaks breaks his um, his vow of celibacy to the priesthood, um, and you know, I this is not this is not a puritanical film in the least. Um, and Russell is kind of clearly very comfortable with nudity on screen, celebrates it even in some ways. Um, but like, what what do you think about how this film deals with de- deals with sex? So, so there's been a lot of like commentary lately about how sex scenes should always fit some prescribed social function in in cinema, especially right. Like the sex scene should teach the viewer about enthusiastic consent or or about other things, and, and I think that while that comes from a positive place and while it would definitely be better to see more enthusiastic consent on screen. Um, I, I think that that is, is kind of approaching things from 
the same kind of like puritanical tradition that that, that seeks to ban sex for good moral hygiene. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I really enjoy about the devils, and maybe enjoy isn't the right word here, but like sex is a human experience and it is embroiled in the weird messiness that our that our type of creature is that the society we have is like it is it is at once a, a wonderful intimate act to be shared with people who want to share it with each other and also a vehicle for some of the worst abuses of power and instantiations of power that our society has to offer mm-hmm. and we kind of see all of that in the devils yes it's yeah. it's not it's not shying away from sex and the devils is everything from an encounter with the divine to an absolute abuse of power and authority for the sustaining of that power and authority um yeah i and like the whole his grania's whole point is like um the the pleasure is not only good but also uh like religiously meaningful mm-hmm. right his 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 whole point is that um like his big flaw, his big kind of dramatic flaw as a character is his uh, inability to pretend that pleasure is bad. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> it's, uh, and I and honestly, I think there's there's lots in this film which deals with it quite well. Um, there is there is a huge amount of like desire in this film. Uh, every single, like say, every single person in this film really, really wants to to bang Oliver Reed, and yeah, I, I see it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but also, the kind of counterpoint to this is like you look at the way the nuns uh, are treated by Barre and the rest of his team of kind of professional witch hunters. You know, there's uh, Aldous Huxley, um, very kind of graphically describes the exorcism of sister uh gene of the angels as a rape in a public lavatory Mm -hmm. and it's like you can kind of like and when you think of it that way and you see um germans like very clean antiseptic wipe clean surfaces all of that white tiling you kind of go yeah i see what i you 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 were forced to kind of look at that on screen like the way that the nuns are treated by the witch hunters has a kind of really kind of horrifying aspect of sexual violence to it, which cuts against like the Grandier is not presented as a good man, like even admits no, that he's no, not no. good at all. But there is also that there that that is a very deliberate contrast that's drawn between his own attitude towards uh, sexual pleasure and the the libidinal sexual pleasure of these like. Uh, these violent sadists who love inflicting this pain on this woman, right? Yes, yes, and I, I really enjoy that the movie doesn't shy away. That kind of like all of all of the people in power in this movie have that same kind of relationship to the people that they have power over. You know that there that that ability to kind of like sexually exploit the people beneath you in this kind of hierarchy of power isn't exclusive to Grandier and his kind of like prosaic notions about pleasure and religion but it's also in it's in louis it's in richelieu it's in bar it's it's in sister jean it's in everyone that has kind of a structural and hierarchical position over the people beneath them yes absolutely um 
and I think uh, that it's it's it would be very easy to do a kind of like knee jerk moralist response to this film and talk about it as you know as 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 pornographic as as you know seventies misogyny uh, and you go yeah okay that that only takes you so far because it misses a lot of the ways in which the film is aware of that intersection of desire, sexual violence and power um, and, and how that is often used. Like it's very scathing to the, the Ursuline nuns and sees them as essentially kind of committing an act of cowardice, but it's also much more critical. The film is much more critical of the various institutions that seek to control them and control what it is that they want. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what about what about you? Any any final thoughts? This this is just a great movie. You know, this is just an all time classic. Like, I, I really recommend that, that people watch this movie. It's got some difficult and challenging moments in it, but I think on the whole, if if all you've ever heard about is people talking about this movie in the same way that they talk about Solo, then you owe it to yourself to to see the devils and see what the real controversy is here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um and yeah, there are like it 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 does pose some difficult questions and it does it does you know have elements which are kind of like hard to look at, but it is also it's just it strikes me as like just a very honest film. Um it's incredibly well done. And yeah, it's it's yeah, w- watch it. Don't don't listen to people who say it deserved to be censored. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a perfect place to end the episode. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on this week's Horror Vanguard. Happy birthday to, <laughs> what to a birthday Apple treat. Guy. Yeah, what, what a birthday treat. Ken Russell's The Devil's themed birthday party. Um, <laughs> that, now that's a party. <laughs> we're going to have streamers. We're going to have cake. Um, one of the guests who draws a straw will be burnt alive at the end. So it'll be pretty fun. We look forward to seeing all of you there. Yeah, streamers, cake, orgy, burning. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed the dread discourse until next week stay spooky